encourage you this morning to humble yourself before God and be willing to sit under his word, to bring all your questions and confusion to him and let the word of God speak into that. So let's read together from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, starting at verse 1. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so it is with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life, and in your toilsome labor under your sun, under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Well, thank you, Bree. Good morning. Good morning. Well, my name is James. I'd love to uh, add my welcome to Brianna's, particularly if you're new, uh, if it's your first time here or you're just visiting, maybe you're tuning in online. Uh, special welcome to you. Thank you for being with us this morning. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Anchor and also part of the West Pimble Gospel Community. A couple of loud group members in here this morning. And I'm excited to share a message with you this morning called The Vanity of Life. The Vanity of life. So why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here together this morning. We thank you that you are here with us by your Spirit. We thank you that you are a God who delights in speaking to his people and that your heart for us is that we would be built up in Christ, made more into the image of who it is that you have called us to be. And so I pray, Lord, that as I speak, Lord, that you would give me the words to say by the power of your spirit and that the things that you want us to hear, the ways in which you want us to receive this morning, to be comforted, to be challenged, Lord, that we would indeed uh, hear those words. And so give us concentration, give us soft hearts and open minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on the 26th of June, 1997... The world 
changed. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was published in the UK and Pottermania ensued and the world was never quite the same again. Now, I remember getting a copy of that book uh, when I was in primary school. Couldn't put it down, kept reading it. I thought it was so interesting. It drew me in. And in that first book, there's this big plot line, spoiler alert, as the title says, about this substance, this mythical, legendary substance called the Philosopher's Stone that could grant immortality to the one who held it in their possession. And if you're a fan of books or TV shows or movies, you probably would have seen this theme, uh, the quest for eternal life pop up time and time again in arts and in entertainment. And I think it's because it resonates with the human desire to avoid death. It's a desire that captures our imagination. It's a desire that we share in. And though we don't embark on treasure hunts for philosopher's stones or fountains of youth, I believe that our hearts reveal the same desire to try and avoid death by simply living in a way that minimizes its reality. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I think that when it comes to death, for most of us, we don't think about it all that much. Uh, we spend our lives accumulating things that we can't take with us when we're no longer here. And when death does come, it's an unwelcome interruption to our relatively comfortable lives. I mean, we even often use language to soften the reality of death. Uh, we say that people have passed away rather than saying that someone has died. And even people from a secular worldview who would say openly that they don't believe in the God of the Bible, or really any God or higher being or the supernatural, uh, for that matter, even people like that with that kind of worldview will use the language in phrases like, I think they're in a better place, or I know I'll see them again one day when speaking of the dead. And in our passage today, the teacher of Ecclesiastes presents the sobering reality of death and in doing so highlights what seems to be the vanity of life. And it's a somber topic. Uh, if you haven't clued in, we've been going through Vanitas, this series in Ecclesiastes, where the teacher will say over and over and over again, this part of life is vanity. Pleasure and possessions are vanity. Work is vanity. Even perhaps life itself is vanity. And so it's a sobering topic, but perhaps appropriately fitting as the second last message in this series and the final week that we're going to spend looking at these vanities, we climax to the theme of life itself. So how do we respond to the vanity of life? What do we do as followers of Jesus, for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, what do we do with the reality of death? Well, these are some of the questions that we'll seek to answer as we spend some time looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 9 this morning. So if you have a Bible there, open it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Keep it open in that passage. We'll be diving in and out of there. If you're taking notes this morning as well, uh, I'll be giving us some headings and some things that we can jot down. 
So come with me to the text, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and we're going to just have a look. And the first thing we see is that all people share a common destiny. The teacher is going to show us that all people share a common destiny. Specifically, what he's talking about is the experience of physical death in this life. Have a look there with me in Ecclesiastes 9, starting in verse 2. This is the words of the teacher. He says, All share a common destiny, the righteous and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. And so what the teacher is saying here is that all people will experience death. And it's a death that doesn't discriminate between the righteous and the unclean, or those who offer sacrifices, or those who don't, both the good and the sinful, the religious and the irreligious suffer the same fate at the end of their lives here on earth. What does he say? The end of verse 3. They join the dead. And so this is the teacher's bleak assessment. And one that he views as an inescapable, evil, even frustrating reality. The inevitability of death. Now the theologian Philip Ryken he sums it up like this. He says, death is the great leveler. No matter who we are or how well we live, our time on earth will end in death. The universal obliterator. It's intense. In the words of one bumper sticker, eat well, stay fit, and die anyway. Gosh, it's depressing. And so this leads the teacher to his second observation, and one that probably seems quite obvious to us, but he's going to delve into it further. He's going to wrestle with it further, and his second point is that living is better than dying. Have a look there in verse 4. The teacher says, anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. So you might be thinking, what's the deal with that live dog thing? It's a bit of a weird thing to say. Self would understand the context in those days, a lion was regarded as a regal, noble creature. In fact, a lion was the royal insignia, the royal symbol of the house of David, which is the house that Jesus also came from. While a dog was not a beloved household member, dogs were not household pets in those days who had equal rights as the children in the family. But dogs in those days were actually despised animals. They were regarded as scavengers, filthy, 
strays. And so the teacher's saying, even a live dog, even a dog that's despised, that's filthy, that, that we were just cast out in those days is better off than a noble, regal, magnificent lion if that lion has no life. And if we still didn't get the point that the teacher's trying to make here, he outlines a number of other reasons why death is undesirable. He says the dead have no knowledge of what's happening on earth. Makes sense, ignorant to what's happening They can gain no further earthly reward or pleasure, and they become oblivion. No one remembers them after they are gone. Now, you might object to this and think, man, that is a harsh word. No one remembers them when they're gone. And I think the truth is that's a tension because we do remember our loved ones when they're gone, don't we? But I think the point that the teacher is trying to make is that Though we remember them as time passes and life goes on and generations come and live and are born over and over again, the dead are remembered less and less until one day, perhaps, not remembered at all. And it's tempting for us as Christians, for those who are followers of Jesus, to want to kind of brush over this stuff, to want to jump ahead and say, hey, we know the end of the story. Can we just like, not talk about this and claim our hope in the resurrection? And even as I've been kind of teaching this passage and explaining the different points of it, I can feel that kind of depressing emotion rising up within us. But the reason that it's important for us to, to camp here, the reason why it's important for us to delve into this and wrestle with this, is because the gospel is not get saved and go to heaven. The gospel is get saved, live life well here on earth, and when those days are up, go to heaven. And so here in the text is an invitation, an invitation for us to truly reflect, to be courageous and stand in that space and consider the vanity of life without dismissing it, without trying to rush past it. And doing so will enable us to learn lessons about how we ought to live now while also making the hope of the resurrection that much sweeter. So that's my aim for this morning. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with the vanity of life? How do we respond to the reality of death? I want to give us a couple of ways, three ways, in fact, that we can respond to this. And the first way is this, we live with gratitude and we learn to be content. If you're taking notes today, why don't you jot that down? We live with gratitude and we learn to be content. Consider what the teacher says in the next few verses. Have a look there in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 7. These verses are directly after the ones that we've just read. The teacher says, Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life, and in your toilsome labor under the sun." 
See, the teacher here is instructing us. He's instructing his listeners and his readers that in light of the vanity of life, we ought to enjoy the lives that we have and the gifts that God has graciously given us. And you might be wondering, what does he mean when he says, for God has already approved what you do? And he's not saying, God approves of anything you do, so do whatever you want. What he's saying is, God has already approved of you enjoying these gifts. So make the most of them. The teacher is telling us to learn the art of contentment. To learn the art of contentment and finding joy in the simple, everyday, ordinary blessings and gifts of God. Now the white clothes there refers to dressing up, going out even, as white garments in those days had the connotations of celebration and victory dinners and parties following wars and victories. Now the anointing of the head with oil is a call to adorn yourself with a pleasant fragrance, like putting on cologne or perfume. Essentially, the teacher is saying, eat and drink. Eat and drink and be glad and be joyful and dress well and smell good too as if you were going out to celebrate. So let me ask you a question this morning. When you consider your life and its finiteness, do you live with gratitude for what you have and are you content? Anchor, let me ask you that again. When you consider the finiteness of life, the fleeting nature of life, the fragility of life, that our days are numbered, do you live with gratitude for what you have and are you content? You see, I believe that our generation has a contentment problem. Because we are a generation, we are a people that is being discipled to always want more and to always want better. Do you know what I mean? More money, more clothes, I need more shoes, more investments, better food, better experiences, better holidays, better homes, better cars, better friendships, better relationships, better sexual experiences. This is the culture that we live in. And even though gratitude is an Instagrammable topic that we might like to tweet out or post on our feed, often, so often, we are not content with what we have. And if it's not the stuff, then it's the significance. We need more influence, more followers, more platform to know that more people think I'm significant and that I matter. But what if you actually don't need more of anything to live a joyful life? What if you don't need to change the world in order to live a life of significance by God? What if you don't need more stuff? What if you don't need to be more liked? See, there's nothing innately wrong with owning things or having ambition, but if the end result of those desires is a relentless hamster wheel pursuit that results in discontentment, then something is wrong. And the teacher here offers us in our consumeristic, I always need more, I always 
want to be more 21st century Western context, a helpful corrective to our lives of relentless pursuit. He says, because death is real and life is fleeting, why waste your life being discontent? Why waste your life always feeling like you need the next thing or a better experience? Instead, appreciate and enjoy the blessings that God has given you. Be grateful for them and learn the art of contentment. Learn to live a content life. Well, the second way that we respond to this, the vanity of life, the reality of death, is this. We invest. We invest in things that last. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. We invest in things that last. Come with me to Matthew chapter 6. Hear the words of Jesus here. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. This is the NLT translation. Makes it nice and simple, straightforward for us as we dip into this gospel. Jesus says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. See, this is from Jesus' very well-known Sermon on the Mount, and he's telling those who are listening not to spend their lives accumulating things on earth, temporary things, things that a human cannot take with them when they die, but to live with a heavenly perspective, storing up treasures in heaven instead. Could there be a more relevant word to a church living in one of the most affluent cities in the world and saturated in a consumeristic, materialistic culture? So here's the thing as it relates to our passage today. If life is fleeting, if death is a reality, then it's foolishness to spend our lives investing in things that we can't take with us. Now, this is not the same thing as saying, uh, don't enjoy what God has given you, what we just talked about. No, this is a call to invest in the eternal, and it's not contradictory to a call to grateful enjoyment of what we already have. You see, Jesus' point here in this passage, the question he's raising is not a question about Enjoyment, it's a question about investment. What are you investing in? Anchor, what are you investing in? Are you storing up treasures here on earth or are you storing up treasures in heaven? And you might say, James, well, how do I know? How do I know the answer to that question? Well, here's a couple of diagnostic questions to get us thinking this Morning, you might like to reflect on these. Where is the focus of your life? Where is the focus of your life? Or if we want to get more specific, where does the majority of your time, energy, attention, work, and finances go towards? 
See, it's one thing to say, well, Jesus is the Lord of my life, and He is my number one priority, and my faith is the most important thing to me. But if we examine and if we self-reflect on the infrastructure of our lives, of our time and our attention and our work and our service and our finances and our relationships, and they tell a different story, then those things just don't quite add up. And so where is the focus of your life? What are you investing in? You know, an inspiring example of a people who are investing in things um, that last is a couple called uh, Sam and Isaac Viglioni. You guys might know them if you've been an anchor for a while. They used to be part of our church here, and now they're members of Anchor Southwest. I want to tell you a little bit about them this morning. Uh, Sam and Isaac were part of the original launch team that helped plant this church many years ago. As a newly married couple at around 19 years old, I believe, they served in multiple teams, they helped to disciple people, and Sam even volunteered one day per week unpaid to help fill some admin gaps for our church so that we could continue growing and making disciples. Uh, During the pandemic, they were part of a small team along with some others who volunteered hours each week to film and edit so that we had content for church online so that every week when we logged onto that portal, there was something for our community to be fed with and encouraged by. And when the time was right, they discerned that it was God's will for them to join Anchor Southwest, be part of their second church plant. And it's not because they didn't have anything else to do. Like, it's not like they had no purpose in life. They had nothing better to do with their time, so they just sunk it all into church. Uh, If you know Sam and Isaac, they actually run a booming wedding videography business called Bloom, sneaky plug. And uh, it's exploded over the last few years as they have filmed weddings for some of the biggest social media influencers in Australia. So if they wanted to, they could very easily put all their time into that and say, well, this is the most important thing to me, my, my hustle, my gig, my business. And so why didn't they do that? How did they find that passion? How did they find that conviction, that desire to serve so much, to invest so much? Well, I think they're an example of people who grasp and live out the conviction that this world is temporary And what matters most is investing in things that last. And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not suggesting this morning that we all need to be Sam and Isaac. You don't need to volunteer one day to help the staff team. You don't need to serve on every team. You don't need to be a part of a launch team. But what are you investing in? What are you choosing to put your time and your effort and your energy and your relationships and your money into? And are you storing up treasures for yourself here on earth, or are you storing up treasures in heaven? As the British missionary Charles Studd said, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. If life is really fleeting, if death is really a reality, then the best investment that you can make is an investment into things that will carry on into eternity. An investment into people, 
an investment into seeing people come to know Jesus, an investment into seeing transformed lives, people built up, using the things that God has given you and placed inside of you to make a difference in this world for Jesus. So the first way that we respond is we live with gratitude and we learn to be content. The second way is we invest in things that will last. And the third and final way that we respond to this passage this morning is we put our hope in the resurrection. We put our hope in the resurrection. See, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is right. Life is fleeting and physical death is a reality. But what the teacher doesn't mention in this passage is that death doesn't have to be the end for humanity. See, living on this side of Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection to life gives us a certain hope that those who trust in Jesus are guaranteed a future bodily, physical resurrection and eternal life. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is verse 20. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. And so you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now, catch this, the resurrection of the dead has begun through another man. See, this is the hope of Christianity, that Jesus Christ came to earth, that he died on a cross for the sins of humanity, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, God raised him to life, and he has the power to share that victory over sin and death with everyone who trusts in him. So that all who believe in him, that everyone who trusts in his sacrifice, though they die in this life, though they experience physical death on this earth, will also be raised to life with him. And maybe you're here this morning and that's news to you. Maybe you've never heard that message before, or maybe you've been coming to church for a while and You've heard lots of messages about how to live and what it means for you right now that Jesus came to die for you. And there are incredible, amazing implications of the fact that Jesus died for us that we can experience right now in this life. But let us not forget that the Christian message is not a message about moralism. It's not a message about how we can do enough good things to be acceptable to God. The Christian message is about a God who came to earth and died in our place so that dead people could come back to life. That's the hope that we're living for. That's the hope that we're living for. And so often we get so fixated and we we focus so much on the blessings here and now that we forget the greatest blessing that we have to experience, the culmination of all things in eternity with God, in a physical resurrected body, free of sin, free of suffering, free of sickness, free of death. 
It's the Christian message. That as we are united to Christ in his death, we are also united with Christ in his resurrection. Uh, Earlier this year, some of you um, who are close to me, you would know my grandfather passed away. And he was my last grandparent. Um, And probably hit the hardest because my first grandparent, though the last, to die when I was an adult. And so I think when I was a kid, probably the other ones, I didn't process as much. I didn't really understand fully what was going on. And after my grandfather died, uh, I kind of just dipped in and out of depression as I processed and mourned uh, his death. You know, mourning is a difficult thing. Grief is hard. And I don't know if I finished mourning, to be honest. But one day as I was reading my Bible, I've been going through Mark uh, in my devotionals, and I came across this passage where Jesus is talking about the hope of the resurrection. And Jesus, he quotes all of these figures of the Old Testament. He's talking, I think, to the Sadducees or the Pharisees. He's talking about the resurrection because they don't believe in it. I think that's the Sadducees. And he says, don't you know, don't you know what God said to Moses when Moses came to the burning bush way back in Exodus? God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. You are in error. Don't you realize he is the God of the living, not the God of the dead? And I'd skimmed over that passage before. I'd read it before, but I never really understood the point that Jesus was making. And as I read it, I believe, you know, the Holy Spirit illuminated these words to me and made them real. And I got it for the first time. Jesus' point is when God says that he's the God of Abraham and he's the God of Isaac and he's the God of Jacob, all of those people, when God was speaking to Moses, all of those people were technically dead. Like they were physically dead. Moses came after them. And yet Jesus says, don't you realize God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And the point that Jesus is making is that all of those famous patriarchs in the faith, though they died an earthly death, they were alive in God. And so God could say, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Fred, my grandfather. Because if you are in Christ, Though you might be dead on this earth, though you might be physically dead, you are alive in Jesus. A spiritual life that one day will become a physical resurrection to be with Him forever. And that just gave me so much comfort because, you know, in that moment as I read those verses and I, it clicked in my head, I realized My grandpa, he's not here anymore physically, but he's alive in God. He's alive in God. And that brought me so much comfort knowing that that is the hope. 
And if you're a follower of Jesus here today, I want to remind you, I don't know, maybe you're dealing with loss, maybe you're struggling with grief, maybe just you don't think about death or your own death because it's so terrifying. I want to remind you that our greatest hope when death comes is not in knowing that we lived a good life. It's not in knowing that people will remember us later on. Our greatest hope when death comes is knowing that the God we serve and worship is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And that is good news. And because He is, we will live again as well. So as I close, I, I want to call you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to remember the hope that we have and to put your hope in it afresh today. A confidence in this hope in the resurrection. And if you're here today and maybe you're tuning in online and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to receive this hope in the resurrection, perhaps for the first time. And this means giving your life over to Jesus, trusting in Him, believing in His sacrifice for you. And the Bible says that when we do that, we receive the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the hope of the resurrection to come. So for those who'd like to do that this morning, I want to lead us in a prayer. So why don't we all stand together? Why don't we all stand together? Let's pray together as we transition to worship. So why don't you close your eyes, bow your heads with me. And if you would like to know this hope in Jesus, this hope of the resurrection, why don't you pray this prayer with me? just in the quietness of your heart and the quietness of your mind and receive what Jesus has done for you today. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In your name, amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer uh, this morning, maybe for the first time, whether you're tuning in online, you're in the room, you know, that's incredible. And uh, the best thing that you can do is just let someone know about that because, you know, we want to be on this journey with you. Well, we're going to transition to a time of worship. And as we sing, I want to invite those who trust in Jesus to head up the back at some point over the next couple of songs and share in the Lord's Supper. You know, we had a long break from the Lord's Supper due to COVID and concerns around hygiene and, you know, handling food, these kinds of things. But we have resumed. And last week, it was just such a beautiful reminder of the body of Christ and the union we share with Jesus as we participated in the Lord's Supper. And so I'd love to invite you through, during the next couple of songs, head up the back, take some of the bread, take the little communion cup and profess your faith in Jesus. Celebrate the physical reminder of being united with Him in His death and resurrection. And maybe you want to head up the back and you want to spend some time worshiping there. Maybe you want to linger there. Maybe you want to pray there. Uh, maybe you want to go with a friend and pray. Uh, we don't want that to be a rushed thing. So please 
as you feel led, head up the back and do whatever it is that uh, you feel led to do in that moment as you take the Lord's Supper. Uh, But I'm going to pray for us again as we transition. Please join me and then we'll worship. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are the God of the living. And though our life on this earth is fleeting, Lord, though there is a vanity to it, though death is a reality, we thank you that you have not left us alone, that you have given us a hope, that you have given us a purpose, you have given us a mission. Lord, you have given us a blueprint for how to make the most of our days. And so work in us, Lord, that we would be a people of contentment. Work in us, Lord, that we would be a people of gratitude, Lord. Work in us, Lord, that we would be a people who at the end of our lives, when we see you, we would say, Lord, look at at what I have invested in for your name, for your kingdom, for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be this kind of people. Holy Spirit, do your work. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So family, as we're about to head into worship together, I, the sermon was particularly apt for me this week. My family experienced a loss and a grief and 